Welcome back to a new week and a brand new episode of the Granny Panty Podcast. I'm your host, Ruby Lynn. If you'd like to follow me, please head on over to rubylynn.com where you'll find everything Ruby. This week's guest is an expert in his field. He is the medical director for the LA LGBT Center. He's also a board member for PASS, which stands for Performer Ability Screening Service. He brings so much knowledge, uh, medical knowledge, and advocacy for adult performers. I'm excited to talk with him today about testing protocol for adult performers and some new tests that are needed for performers. So help me welcome Jamie Bell. Jamie, I'm so excited to have you on the show today. You are really my first expert in the medical field on my show, and I was compelled to have you on uh, because there's so many questions out there about what's going on, some from myself. I was also able to get some emails from people asking questions, so that's always exciting to see what kind of information is needed out there. But I'd love to start off and have you tell me kind of about your background and how long you've been in the field, uh, when you became a PASS certified board member, and yeah, mm -hmm. tell us about you. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me, Ruby. I'm so happy to be here. Um, so I, um, I've been in the field of... Um, HIV, STIs, LGBTQ health for a little over 20 years now. Nice. So um, right out of the fifth grade. No, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, no. Um, so I've, I've worked in uh, community health settings. I've worked um, homeless health care clinics, mm -hmm. but primarily my passion is sexual health. And I'm currently the medical director for the sexual health program at the Los Angeles LGBT Center. And uh, I've been here going on six years at the center. And I work, uh, I have a lot of patients who, especially being here in Los Angeles, um, mm -hmm. who are in the adult industry or who are, uh, are sex workers. And I'm just very passionate about being able to provide a safe, non-judgmental care for folks mm -hmm. in the industry. Um, I've unfortunately heard, you know, horror stories of how, right. how folks have, can be treated out there. And at the LGBT Center, we are very welcoming of sex workers. Uh, you know, there's no judgment. It's all about mm -hmm. respect and taking care of, of your health. So uh, by training, I'm a, I'm a nurse practitioner, and I've been a nurse practitioner for 14 years now. Prior to that, I was a registered nurse. And let's see. Uh, oh, pass. Um that was your question as well. So I've been on the yes. board of, of PASS uh, for almost two years now. Okay. The board of directors, yeah. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, they are so lucky to have you Aww, at your thank center. You. Thank you. There definitely needs to be more of that. Um, what caught my attention, how I discovered you, was during this uh, recent, or, you know, in the past few months, the chlamydia outbreak, the... Yeah you know, different vaginal, anal, throat 
different chlamydias. So I kind of wanted to start off and talk about that. Um, as we discussed before I started recording, I kind of have a background in social work. My caseload tended to be a lot of HIV, and that's where my education is too. But even for me, the whole anal and throat chlamydia, the throat I can kind of understand, but the anal, mm-hmm. how did we start discovering that? Yeah, so... You know, in in community health and STI clinic, we historically have checked um, when we test for gonorrhea and chlamydia. We historically have done throat swabs, either urine or vaginal uh, mm-hmm. swabs, and uh, rectal swabs. So we know that there's a large percentage of um, cases of gonorrhea and chlamydia that are what we call extragenital or not in the front, basically. Um, right. So throat or or anal. In our particular population, it's upwards of 50% of our positive gonorrhea or chlamydia are not genital. So pretty high. Um, Statistics in the general population are probably somewhere around 30% of cases are extra genital. So, you know, you kind of figure with the adult industry, you know, somewhere Mm -hmm. all range. Um, And I think there's, there's been a lot of confusion, folks you know, uh, felt like if they're getting a urine test that that's, mm-hmm. you know, checking them for gonorrhea and chlamydia, mm-hmm. but it's very site specific. The infection can be in one location, it can be in two or all three. So very important to check to check uh, each site separately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And um, is PASS, PASS recommends that as a standard protocol now, correct? For correct. adult creator testing? Correct. Yeah. It started around the first of the year. Um, okay. It's something that we had, you know, been talking about for quite a while and mm-hmm. something I know um, uh, Ian O'Brien, who's the executive director of PASS and myself, something that, you know, we both felt very strongly about. And I think it kind of, it took this recent outbreak um, mm-hmm. to, to, I think, really move things forward. And I think, uh, you know, performers then, said, hey, you know, we want to be safe. We want to make sure we're fully clear. Right, right. Uh, That's awesome. And I had some questions. I asked my viewers and my fans and my subscribers uh, on Twitter to send in some questions. I had some specific to that. So I want to have you maybe address them. Sure. So this person asked, how is how is chlamydia showing up on the rectal swabs when there's no symptoms, or I guess it would apply to both throat mm-hmm. and yeah. rectal without any symptoms? Yes. So, yeah, that's a very good question. So, especially in the case of the throat, um, gonorrhea and chlamydia, 90% of the time is asymptomatic, no symptoms in the throat. On the occasions that I do see patients who have uh, throat symptoms of gonorrhea, it often mimics strep. It's pretty painful, red and swollen, but the majority of the time it's going to be asymptomatic. With rectal infections, um, it's somewhere around 50-50. There may be no symptoms, especially in the case of chlamydia. Uh-huh. There tends to be you know, fewer or milder symptoms than in the case of rectal gonorrhea. And even, you know, in, in the urogenital in the front, um, you know, some folks just never develop symptoms. Um, okay. So, yeah, that's, that's even more reason why it's so important to screen because of the yeah. asymptomatic. Yeah. 
If they were having symptoms, what kind of symptoms are common? Yeah, so uh, if it is uh, in the genital site, um, it's going to be burning with urination, abnormal genital discharge. Sometimes that varies, though. Some folks will describe it just as a little abnormal itching or tingling or, you know, something feeling not quite right to all out, you know, really severe discomfort and the discharge. And same with rectal. It it runs the gamut of, you know, just some abnormal, itchy discomfort to, you know, very uncomfortable pain discharge. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And would throat, would the symptom be like sore throat, swelling, anything like that? Yes. So if there are symptoms, again, most of the time there won't be in the throat, but if there are, it would be a sore throat. Um, redness, swelling. Yeah. Often looks like strep. Uh, it can fool us gotcha. sometimes. Yeah. Okay. But the majority of the time, you know, we have folks come into STI clinics saying, I have a sore throat. I think I have an STI. The majority of the time when they have symptoms, it's not an STI. But. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I wondered about that as well. That was a good question. Yes. I have another question from, um, I'm assuming a performer who said, um, I perform and do collaborations with other people, get tested. My boyfriend, however, doesn't uh, shoot with anyone and has only had sex with me, but te- but got testing and tested positive, positive for the rectal chlamydia. How can that be if I tested negative and he tested positive? Mm. Okay. Those scenarios are tricky and they do happen. You know, tests are are not 100% accurate. I mean, they're highly accurate, 98, 99. But, you know, when you're testing as frequent as folks in the adult industry, Mm -hmm. you know, need to test, you're kind of statistically bound to occasionally possibly get a false negative. Um, And the other thing is, you know, there's a little bit of room for human error. We have folks do self-swabs. Um, and, uh, you know, even though it's a pretty simple procedure, it's still, Mm -hmm. you know, the human error is kind of built into there as well. So those, those are hard to answer for sure. I mean, in, in, in those cases, I mean, the recommendation is I would treat someone if their partner tested positive, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and without knowing the whole history where they, you know, had they been treated for an STI in the past? Maybe they cleared it. The partner was carrying the bacteria and was asymptomatic. So it's a little tricky to know sometimes. Yeah. And can that harbor for years? I mean, could it be that the the male partner may have just had it for a long time and never tested for it? Or it's possible. It's possible. Okay. So generally over time you know, the, the bacteria will cause what we call secondary infection. So um, potentially um, a prostatitis or an infection in the testicles, things like that, where the bacteria moves, it it was asymptomatic initially, (laughs) you know, how long that takes, it just varies, you know, um, among individuals, women who may have chlamydia or gonorrhea for a lengthy period of time and not know it are at risk Mm -hmm. for developing uh, pelvic inflammatory disease or PID, those things are much, you know, less common in folks who test regularly, though, okay. to have 
complications. So I don't want people to think, you know, like that's right. a common thing. We see that in folks who don't test regularly, then they're more prone to developing a secondary infection. Gotcha. Gotcha. And that similar question, I feel like when the outbreak really went wild <laughs> in January that I saw that a couple times, uh, yeah. performers posting my partner, you know, tested positive or negative and vice versa. One of yeah. them was positive, one was negative. So yeah, that can be very confusing. It is very confusing. And, and I definitely saw a lot of patients coming in with, you know, results that, you know, had discrepancies like that. Mm -hmm. And so then I would, you know, we would usually retreat, or I'm sorry, retest, and then treat appropriately. Um, And again, it can be hard to to know sometimes why those things happen. There was an update to the uh, gonorrhea chlamydia assay that we use last, uh, I want to say, yeah, probably middle of last year, like a newer generation of that test. And so mm-hmm. we never know, was the lab using the most sensitive test at the time? Were they not? Was one using one? And so right. to my knowledge now, I think all of the, the testing labs, everybody's on the same, you know, uh, version of the, the test. So good, good. Yeah. That's good because I'm also seeing a lot of new labs for adult testing popping up, um, which is good. But then yeah. also the question is, is everybody testing for the same thing? Yes. We hope. And and yeah. hopefully, well, we know of one that's decided not to report to pass, but the importance yeah. of reporting as well. Yeah. I mean, and the, important, the importance is that just then, you know, there is some oversight of, you know, what's being tested, mm-hmm. um, the methodologies that are being used, and just, you know, it standardizes for, for folks. Um, I know the newer labs that have come on recently are part of PASS. Um, yes. So that that's great. And um, yeah, so uh, that that's the goal, just so that we have a standard, an industry standard among I all like of that. Yeah, absolutely. I like that a lot. And I live in a very dry area for labs or performers. I'm in Portland, Oregon, so there's not not a lot out here. But, uh, you know, I'm hoping that some of the newer labs will contract with, you know, draw stations and stuff here so that we can utilize that. Yeah. And I believe that's the plan. I know we're Mm -hmm. at the LGBT Center in L.A. We're working closely with CLEAR now to... um, to provide uh, treatment for folks who test positive for STIs through the CLEAR lab so that there's a treatment, you know, mechanism, or I'm sorry, a referral mechanism for treatment. That's good because some people don't have insurance. They don't have primary care. And so that is awesome. I love hearing that. Yeah. And, And on those lines, I mean, it's really our priority to make this you know, as affordable as we can for folks. If they have insurance, we can take insurance. If they don't, mm-hmm. we're a federally qualified health center, so we can see folks on sliding scale or right. other programs. Um, you know, because I understand this, the testing in and of itself is very expensive um, out of folks' hard-earned income, and so I don't want the treatment to be costly as well. And, mm-hmm. and so, fortunately, we're able to get the medications for no cost for folks. Um, so I'm really excited about this partnership with Clear. What a great program. 
I love that. Yeah, testing is crazy, especially when you live in an area that you don't have a clear or any of the testing locations. You're not only paying 225 or whatever for to order your test, but it's like another 100 bucks just for the draw and all that. It starts to add up. I always joke that before I go to an event, I'm already, you know, $350 out the door before I sold a, made a video. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's not good. <laughs> so let's move on. I personally have a lot of questions about the MGen. Um, okay. It's, you know, that's not anything I heard of uh, when I, you know, did my public health degrees. Yeah. Gosh, 10 years ago. I've never heard of it. So can you speak yeah. to a, like, where did that come from? How did that all come to light? And then uh, symptoms, treatment, and should we be worried? I've seen a couple things on Twitter. I've saw some performers that said, if you're not MGen tested, I'm not shooting with you. But then I saw yeah. a tweet that you did that said, we really shouldn't be that worried about it. So can you talk about that and clarify that? Absolutely. So I think MGen was discovered like in the early 1980s as a okay. bacterial infection um, that can cause symptoms very similar to gonorrhea and chlamydia. Um, so again, like we talked about, it could be the um, burning with urination okay. or abnormal genital discharge. Um, Typically, I mean, there's been no standard, even even up till now, we have no actual CDC recommendations for routine screening for uh, mycoplasma genitalium or MGen. Um, so it's historically been a diagnosis of exclusion. Um, so, you know, if we test a, a patient for gonorrhea and chlamydia, or any of the other common infections that can cause these symptoms, uh, bacterial vaginosis, trichomonas, um, UTIs, you know, mm -hmm. when we've ruled out all of those other infections and a person is still symptomatic, it's appropriate to test for MGen. That's kind of how up to this point that it's, you know, how we've, we've just done it clinically, but it's really emerging as a newer STI now. And CDC does have treatment protocols. Unfortunately, MGen quickly became resistant to the, um, wow. the initial treatment protocols. Okay. So things like azithromycin or doxycycline okay. by itself, um, a lot of resistance. So it's a pretty aggressive treatment regimen now of 14 days of two okay. different antibiotics. So kind of harsh. So how, how we have been approaching it, at least in our STI clinic, is if a person is still symptomatic, uh, we will do the test, um, or if they have a known exposure to MGen, their okay. partner test positive. Now, we don't automatically treat for a known exposure because we know that a, a, a decent percentage of folks will clear this on their own. So in one of the MGen studies, over 50% of folks cleared the infection at three months mm. um, spontaneously or, or naturally. Okay. So now, obviously, if we're working in the adult industry, don't have three months to, you right, know, wait. Right. And so, so we, you know, those, those, you know, protocols and recommendations, we, you know, that's, they're just that they're, they're guidelines. They're not, you know, hard and fast for every situation. Okay. So 
I certainly would test somebody in the adult industry because, mm-hmm. um, you know, if there was a known exposure or symptomatic. Um, as far as it being incorporated into routine testing, I don't think we're quite there yet. Um, a pass is in the process. We're forming a medical advisory board. So we're going to have, you know, several medical experts, infectious disease experts mm-hmm. on this panel to really look at, you know, what we've been testing for up to this point. Okay. And do we need to revamp that panel? You know, ideally, folks should have access to vaccinations and we shouldn't have to check for hepatitis B every 14 days. You know, mm-hmm. that's if if a person is vaccinated, then there's no need to check for that. And, you know, so I think if we can really look at how we can kind of bring this panel into the current, you know, scientific, what we have mm-hmm. now, you know, the, the medical uh, knowledge that we have now, um, because again, it's always in mind of how do we make this the most cost effective for folks right. as well as the most benefit for community health in, in the right, population. right, so. right. Okay, yeah, and there was a clinic I think that had uh, that was sending out the MGen test. I personally ordered one and got it, but yeah. how often do you think an adult performer should test for it, or should um, they? If yeah. they don't have symptoms. <laughs> so, and I think that those are things that we're really going to look at it in the medical advisory uh, board. But personally, at the moment, I don't think every 14 days, I think that's excessive um, okay. and not cost effective. Because my understanding is it adds on a couple hundred dollars extra to the panel um, or up to that. Right. Uh, and so I don't think that's, you know, cost effective or medically necessary at this point. Okay. As far as how often to test, um, certainly if, if there is a known exposure, I, I would test um, maybe, you know, periodically every two, three months, at least now until we have better, better guidelines. Because again, some folks will clear it um, right. on, on their own. We know that doxycycline still has some effectiveness for MGen. So if we're giving doxycycline to treat chlamydia, mm-hmm. that would also have some, you know, um, effect if a person was carrying that bacteria. It's, I think, more to come as we get, you know, more information from the CDC. And, and okay. um, but it's definitely something to be aware of. I don't think it's something to you know, cause a lot of panic right now. And and I think the other the other piece to that is commonly when you do a, a, a test for mycoplasma genitalium, it's combined with two other organisms, one called mycoplasma hominist and okay. one called ureaplasma uh, urolyticum. So those two <laughs> organisms, <laughs> I know, those two That's organisms, <laughs> it's like, those those two organisms have, have added to the confusion with MGen because so uh, urea plasma and M hominis that are in that panel, those organisms exist in the genital urogenital tract normally. Okay. And most of the time they don't cause any problems, they don't require treatment. But folks were getting positive results on those and kind of panicking, understandably, like I have a positive, you know, lab result here. Mm-hmm. So in the absence of symptoms, you would not treat that. Okay. So you would think of those organisms kind of like 
you know, we naturally have yeast and fungus mm -hmm. on our skin in the genital tract. We don't treat those unless there's an overgrowth of the organism and you get um, symptoms, right? Okay. So, so what I do now when I test folks for MGen in, in my clinic is I only do an MGen specific test, you know. Okay. Uh, MGen should not exist normally. <laughs> it's not colonized in the urinary tract. So if it's there, uh, we want to treat it. Okay. Symptom, symptoms are not. The other two organisms we leave alone unless, you know, a person is symptomatic and we've ruled out the other common causes. Okay. So some okay. of this, you know, it kind of goes from the the screening arena into like medical diagnostics where, you know, folks really should see a medical provider at that point if they've tested negative for the most common infections mm -hmm. and um, and uh, still have symptoms. Gotcha. So. Gotcha. Thank you for clarifying that because it is confusing. You know, it's, should confusing. I panic or should I not panic? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I wouldn't panic. I, I think it is something to be aware of. Absolutely. Okay. It's something, you know, to we're we're definitely watching closely. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, recommendations, you know, likely will change over time. Um, right. And I know the CDC is watching this now, especially with the drug resistance. So. Right. Um, right. Yeah. So more to come. But I think, you know, again, if, if there's a concern, definitely test, you know, I would really ask for an MGen specific test and leave okay. out those other things because what's happened then folks have been getting antibiotics unnecessarily right. when, and that's positive. And again, that then contributes to potential drug resistance. So Right, right, right. It just break it just makes me flash back to the whole MRSA thing when that all became, you know, Absolutely. we all carry it on our skin, but it just looks for an yeah. opportunistic time. Yeah, absolutely. So great. That's a great analogy, Ruby. That's, um, yeah, I use the, I use the yeast a lot because yeah, mm -hmm. it's always there, but we, we leave it alone unless it's causing problems. Yeah. Right. Right. Awesome. Well, thanks for clarifying that. Absolutely. I had another question come in, um, to my email that someone asked, do you think, they said porn performers, but I'll say adult creators. Do you think adult creators should be on prep as a standard? Mm. What's your take on that? Yeah. So, well, I'll tell you, I'm very pro prep. I'm very much a prep advocate. Um, we've seen, you know, new HIV infections decrease dramatically uh, mm -hmm. as a result of prep. Um, however, I mean, you really have to look at the individual you know, situation, mm -hmm. who are the performers filming with, you know, and not to stigmatize any particular group, but, mm -hmm. you know, if, if there are crossover performers, then that's possible, you know, that you may want to, to be on prep. And again, not to say that it's only transmitted through, you know, men who have sex with men or anything like that. We right, know anyone right. can be at risk, but it, I think it's very individual. Um, but I, I, prescribed prep all day long and it's very safe and very well tolerated. And um, I have a lot of performers um, both on the, well, really in, in all genres, gay, mm -hmm. straight, bi, trans uh, uh, genres who take prep. Okay. Um, 
But I think it's an individual thing. I know some folks don't like taking pills every day. They don't like mm-hmm. that idea. There is a new injectable prep um, that's every two months. Um, a patient comes in and gets an injection. All of these prep methods are over 99% effective at preventing HIV. So yeah, it, in general, I'll say yes. You know, I'm, I'm very much an advocate for this because anything we can prevent, you right. know, but but it is very individual. And that's where I think it, it really requires having a conversation with the medical provider and, and seeing if this is right for, for that person. Okay. Awesome. That I that was my questions that I had emailed in. Those were some good ones though. Very good. Awesome. So what do you think is you know the most important lesson we've kind of learned with all of these new yeah. you know, STIs um, emerging or at least coming more to our attention? I mean it's these are things that have been there always but we just haven't seen this. Sure. Sure. Well I think it's been very exciting for me, too, to see how actively involved a lot of performers have gotten in this. It shows they really care about their health, the health Mm -hmm. of their community. Um, So that's really great. And I love when folks reach out to me on Twitter and, you know, ask questions and I can direct them. I think, you know, aside from the routine screening that we have in the industry, I think it's just very important for folks to establish you know, healthcare with a medical provider who they can feel very comfortable with and disclosing their occupation, disclosing sexual practices, orientation, gender identity, et cetera. Because, you know, again, the stories that I've heard, the unfortunate stories out there, you know, I'm very much like a holistic provider. I believe, you know, everything's all connected and our sexuality is part of that. And so, we need to feel comfortable disclosing those aspects of our of our whole person to a medical mm-hmm. provider to get the best care. So, right. um, you know, we want folks, again, to feel safe and not judged to come in and let us know what's going on. And then I can, you know, like in answering the prep question, then I, you know, when I when I have a, a good uh, history, then I can say, yeah, this is the right thing for you or right. maybe consider this. And so I just I think that's just so important. And and there are parallels with the LGBTQ community and the adult community as well, yeah. because I think both uh, both groups, you know, there can be medical mistrust. There's been, you know, discrimination in healthcare for those groups. Mm-hmm. So I, I think when folks and to me, the biggest honor is when folks come in and they say, I feel so comfortable here. Everybody has treated me so well from the front desk to the nursing staff to the lab staff to the medical providers that people feel respected and and um, to me that's the greatest you know honor to you know to hear that and so yeah we need to clone you can we just clone you in your <laughs> clinic and uh, yeah I mean I you know and it's tough when folks live outside of of major metropolitan right. areas you know most most major cities have LGBTQ health centers. Mm-hmm. Um, where I think that's a good option to seek to seek care, um, but when you when you're kind of outside of that access, it gets it gets tricky. It does, yeah. it does, and I, my hope is that more you know I I call them mainstream providers, but you know your regular um, clinics yeah. and and that kind of thing become yeah. more open minded. I know for me. 
recently just uh it was uh december january i had my yearly you know pap smear and all that and um you know meet with your pcp just for once a year thing and i came clean (laughs) no pun intended and told them what you know my job was and i was pleasantly surprised they were very supportive um no, you know, no questions asked. Where I was disappointed is that my commercial insurance wouldn't cover an appointment to go in and talk about um, to get a full STI panel because I didn't have any symptoms of anything. So that is an issue. I think those of us who are, you know, privileged enough to actually have access to com- to commercial insurance, they need to get up to speed. I they mean. Do. Absolutely. To not cover an office visit where you're like, you know, I just want to, you yeah. know, do a complete physical with a full STI panel, even though I'm getting tested regularly, you know. And my PCP said you're getting more testing by testing, doing an adult performer test than what we would even offer for you to come in if you thought you had <laughs> just to yeah. get a normal one. Yeah, that's so frustrating. It just speaks to the bigger issues of of healthcare in our country, but. Right. Um, I typically, you know, there, there's ways to do that. I mean, in, in California, we're very lucky. Our, our state Medi-Cal program uh, covers, you know, routine screening. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if there's an occupational risk, I, I consider that a possible STI exposure, right? So right. sometimes it's in how that you document, you know, um, why the person's coming in and, and, Fortunately, I've been pretty lucky um, in being able to, you know, get what I need for my patients. But that's awesome. That's not always the case. So that's awesome. Yeah. Well, amazing information as we close up the show. I, I mean, I love following you. I have, I have learned so much just from your oh, posts. So keep it up. <laughs> thank you. Oh, it's it's my pleasure, my honor to be able to. Uh, provide the information and to be able to help folks in the industry. I, I just feel very, very strongly about, you know, having, having access. So it's, yeah, yeah it, it is really invaluable, I think. And so we're also glad that you're here and uh, keeping us you. up to date and, thank you so and much. that. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show too. And um, all the good work that you're doing. It's just so Ooh. exciting. Thank you. It's my pleasure. It was so nice to be with you today, Ruby. Nice to meet you. Thanks again. You're very welcome.